0: Can I just have a word? Can I have a word with you? I feel like it doesn't work. (laughs) Would you you let me speak?
1: Okay, do it. (laughs) Okay, go. Welcome to the nail polish sister. Chef's kiss. So. So guys, remember those wonderful note cards I was so excited for? Well, they're here. And I decorated them for me and Jamie. Um, let me just read you a few examples because you guys can't see, but we'll post it on our Instagram so you can see the beautiful work I've done. The Follow first us one at the Nail Polish Sisters. Yes, at the Nail Polish Sisters. The first one. How polished are you? Ooh, <laughs> play on words. Don't ever apologize. <laughs> Second, play on words. Um, the Nail Polish Sisters.
0: Oh wow, original. Awesome.
1: More nail polish sisters looking like it was done by a five year old. And there's a kangaroo on it. That That looks like my woe. Say less. (laughs) Say less. This is a bedazzled NPS. Nips. Nips. (laughs) (laughs) Nips. Nips. At
0: the beginning of every episode,
1: nips. nips. And taste the nail polish. I love that. Taste the rainbow. Exactly. Respect the pouch. Respect it. (laughs) never so we're gonna use those today i'm really excited to use them. oh jamie has one over there tell us what it says it says
0: the nail polish sisters
1: just kiss." <laughs> and there's
0: ice cream cones on it it's making me hungry Should we get lunch after- <laughs> yeah i'm so <laughs>
1: hungry um so that was our that was our um i just we just wanted to let you guys know that we're using those now also because- feel free
0: to send in any ideas for new note card Names. Oh, I love that! Like if you have a little play on words, we can only be so creative between the two of us. We need your help, so send them in, mate. Send them in. Send in the clowns <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Wait, please hold. I have to tell them about my ick that I just did. Oh, oh no! <laughs> so, Bella's Bella's manse We shall call him. An amazing man, if I do say so myself. He likes to find icks and then do them to (laughs) the person who has the ick. So that happened. And he said to me, he said, what's your like biggest ick? Essentially being like, how can I trigger you in that way? (laughs) And I was like, I don't know if I have one. And then I realized I do, but I've never been able to explain it because it's when people sing in the middle of their stories, like if they're talking about something and then they start singing. And then, cut two, I have dinner with my dad the other night and he's talking about something like pretty serious. And then all of a sudden, he just starts singing and he was like, I feel nothing. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. I realized that's my ick. And I actually told him about this. So this is not like news to him. But the reason why it's so icky to me is one, <laughs> because there's a lot of people around me at a public place. Number two, he wasn't even singing it right. So he was trying to find the right way of singing it while he was singing it. And he was saying, I feel nothing. And I was like, what is that from? And he was like, you know, and I was like, oh, I know what you think it's from. You think it's from a chorus line, but you're singing West Side Story. (laughs) I feel pretty. And I was so upset. I actually lost my appetite. I was so upset that he, number one, mixed up those musicals and two, don't sing in the middle of your story. You could have gotten it across by just saying, you know, and I just felt nothing at that moment. Why did you have to go, I feel <laughs> nothing? I just can't. Then we got in a huge fight about it because he thought he was singing the right. Anyways, he was like, well, then sing it for me. And I was like, well, I can because I was this part in a chorus line, you bitch. Um. Anyways, <laughs> musical theater. I give myself the ick. Okay, I'm stopping.
1: It's, it's like, like Lake Guyene all over again. <laughs>
0: Bella was stalking this boy I made out with one time, and she's like, oh, my God, look at him. He's fancy. He goes to Lake Guyen And then two minutes later, she goes, oh, wait, it's Lake Green.
1: His shirt was, like, <laughs> crumbled in the Instagram, so the R looked like an A. <laughs> oh God, it was Lake Guyene. <laughs> Like, so, like French lake. I don't know. Turns out it's like a green, which is like outside of Michigan. Fuck.
0: That was a good laugh. Truly the one that got away. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but if you ever go on a date with me, which a lot of you, you might have the chance. <laughs> Considering I make out with everyone, um, you could be next. <laughs> don't ever sing in the middle of your story, but I just sang. Anyways, Back to what we're actually here for, which is to talk about
1: mental health. She's saying again. <laughs> oh, fuck. Uh, Before we get into it, we do want to give you guys that little trigger warning because we want to make sure that you guys know that you're about to listen to a, a heavier episode. But with that being said, it's so informative and It's so truthful and honest, which is the goal of this podcast at the end of the day. Some of the topics we're going to be covering are bullying, eating disorders, and addiction. We want to make sure you guys feel comfortable listening. So at any point, if you feel triggered or uncomfortable, just turn it off. We won't be insulted. We want what's best for you and your mental health, hence this episode. So with that being said, keep on listening to learn some new things. Also, if you or
0: anyone you love is struggling with any of the Topics we're going to cover. We are going to link resources below, so any of you are welcome to use those at your disposal, and please do and share them with people you know and love. And with that said, our guest for today is Casey Shabazz, aka Casey WIP. That is the nickname we gave. That will be explained later. With all that said. Let's get into it. Please rate, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. A five, a four, a three, two, one.
1: Hi, guys. Give a big warm welcome to our guest. Casey, Casey is a therapist, and we're gonna let her tell you guys what she does because I'm gonna botch it. <laughs> hey, guys.
2: How's it going? So
1: Casey, care to tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, so I am a therapist. I got my master's in social Work a little over a year ago. I've been working for a few years in substance abuse treatment and eating disorder treatment obviously mental health, across the lifespan. So I've worked with people of all ages, but I usually work with um, adolescents and young adults.
1: Before we jump into it, can I ask you how you went from being in theology and philosophy into then
2: social work, into therapy? Yeah, I think when I was studying theology and philosophy in undergraduate, I was looking for answers to deeper psychological issues. But I was finding answers in that existential, broad way. But as I grew up a little bit more, I think I realized I needed to ask them in a more personal way. So that led me to therapy. Very cool. It's
1: really cool.
0: I always find it really interesting and sort of fascinating how there are so many, you know, majors that connect to Therapy and mental health because I studied acting in school and I found that psychology I minored in psychology and it it they all sort of support each other, you know So I think that's really cool that you took That curiosity and moved it into a place where you could actually help with the things you learned
2: Thanks. Yeah, that's really Really cool that you did acting and psychology together. Very cool
0: I think that's why we're so curious and why we wanted to do an episode on mental health as everything sort of circles back to it Mm -hmm. now more than ever, obviously. And because of all the recent developments in mental health, it's like it's there's an opportunity to learn about it. And it's so cool to be able to have these conversations with, you know, like minded people who are also curious about mental health or people that don't know enough about it and should know some stuff about it, which is what we can hope to do today on this episode a little bit.
1: I love that. So. Our theme of this week, obviously, is mental health, and this is a theme we're going to definitely be talking about a lot throughout the season just because, as Jamie just said, how important it is to us truly and how interested we are in it and bettering ourselves every day mentally, physically, in always, shapes, or forms, but we wanted to specifically dive into what we would consider the first layer of mental health, and that is Where it stems from initially, whether it be childhood, what traumas it could be from and all of that stuff.
0: Yeah. And sort of it's interconnected to, you know, how whatever happens in childhood, obviously, is always going to have an effect all the way through your lifespan. So it's sort of trying to figure out, you know, why is that so prevalent um, still in our lives, even if it happened at per se age zero for me.
1: Yeah, even if you can't remember it somehow, it still sticks within your brain. So we have a lot of questions for you, Casey, and I feel like we should maybe just start diving right in.
2: Absolutely, Um, these are really great questions, guys.
1: So Jamie and I talk about this a lot, and it's the idea of rejection at a young age and how that forms pretty much your entire being growing up because it could be something as simple as not getting a part in a school play you want when you're five years old Jamie, are you adding on (laughs) live podcast and how that ends up or what your parents put in your head about specific rejections and what those mean to them, which then gets put on you. So we kind of wanted to go into the idea and ask you about rejection and what you see, what's, hmm, how do I word this? What you see across the board with rejection and kids and if that does have an effect on how you mentally form.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, so when we are young, our brains are really vulnerable, right? Like it's still a lot of gray matter. We're, we're learning we're, language. You know, we're absorbing the world around us. We're very much still developing. So when we get these messages, for example, rejection, like we really internalize that. That gets into our right. <laughs> neurochemistry. We we get the message I'm not welcome in the world or the world doesn't like me, what have you. And we're also really self-centered as children, right? We can't see how big the world is. We're we're our whole world. And we're just like, oh, this. I'm a failure. I'm rejected. And it's easy to internalize an event as truth when our brains are so moldable and flexible, you know? Yeah.
0: I also... Two to that I remember and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you probably know better than me, but every like in the human experience, the one universal need is for belonging right am I sort of on the right track so I feel like that really. ties into rejection as well because like immediately if you don't feel like you belong from a really young age, my question to that is like how do you un how do you undo that after it's so? you know, prominent in your brain from a young age, those things get instilled. We take them in, they mold to us. How do you sort of resolve that? Or does it not get resolved and you just sort of deal with it as it mm-hmm. comes up?
2: Really good, intense, deep question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I love I love this shit. Um podcast. I'm not, right? Yes, you are. oh I am. Absolutely. You I was on a podcast once and I cussed and oh no I wasn't it wasn't a podcast it was the radio and they were so mad okay anyway yeah good so um, fucking go for it (laughs) (laughs) you can fucking cuss bro I love what you said about our need for belonging as as human beings we are born so vulnerable where we need belonging that our survival is very tied to social belonging. So I think that's why rejection has such intense power in us, right? Because it signals, like, I'm being cast out. I'm not going to survive. We're born so helpless, right? So many other animals are born doing what they need to do. And we're born, um, which I could go into... This is a lot. Okay, I need to focus. (laughs) Why we're born so underdeveloped is like a whole other deal. Anyway, you're asking, how do we undo that? Or does it ever get undone? And the brain is extremely flexible. You know, neuroplasticity is such a popularized concept now. So yes, it is very possible to rewire our brains. It takes a lot of effort and work and just the awareness that it's possible, right? Because a lot of times we live in this unconscious story And we don't ever step out of it that i i'm a fuck up i am rejected you know we don't believe that there's any other truth we can live but there is and we are in a contemporary society and our brains and, and bodies haven't evolved past you know that survival mode we're not as dependent on people's acceptance as maybe we once were for survival right like Someone can be a total dick to you. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, you could get, like, canceled on social media, right? And that's everyone's nightmare. People, like, want to kill themselves when that shit happens. Because it feels like your survival is threatened. But you can still it's a modern society. You can still go to the grocery store and get food, even if like the whole, you know, like if you're being rejected socially, you you still have access to survival. But it puts you
0: in like a survival. You're living in survival at that point then, right?
2: Right. But you have to train yourself to realize actually my survival is not dependent upon other people's approval, even though it does feel like it in our our body. Great point.
1: I feel like also with, the rise of social media and the immediacy into everyone's lives, famous or not, it has created this whole entire new need of the validation that comes from people online, strangers that you don't know, and the hate that comes from them also. Like, that does now have a big effect on our brain. And it just makes me wonder, have you seen that um, effect? the adolescence and, like, the youth that you work with, and how does that play out? Because I don't have younger siblings, so I don't know how that works anymore. Mm -hmm. I have cousins and stuff, and I know how it's affecting them, but it just makes me wonder, how do you tell young kids that it—that doesn't matter when, at the end of the day, that feels like the most important thing to them? What's your—what's the trick or what's the thing that is best for them to know and remember so they are— not putting this weight on something so stupid really.
2: It's really hard with younger people that have been so inundated with social media that it becomes more of their real world, you know? Um, I definitely, because I've worked in eating disorder treatment with teens, that's a huge thing, right? The constant comparison to appearances of others. And a lot of eating disorder recovery is individuating from compulsive societal values, right? So finding your own values. Do I actually value sacrificing my life, my mental health, my relationships to be skinny? Is is that really what matters to me more than anything? So that's what TV and social media, whatever, is telling us. And so I think what I do is I I try to redirect their focus inward because they're constantly looking outward, right? And comparison. So looking inward, discovering intrinsic worth instead of trying to achieve worth by some external, and then also look into their true values. You know, do I really value being skinny?
0: (laughs) I mean, I I truly can't even imagine the level that it's at for the kids that are now in middle school and high school and have all this access to that social media. Because when we were in high school, I I will never forget this for as long as I live. In ninth grade, we had a social media platform called FormSpring, where people Mm -hmm. were able to write anonymously and say whatever the hell they wanted about anyone. And I remember it was as sort of clickbait as like an Instagram sort of thing where you're constantly checking to see if your name was put in a question or there was an answer with your name in it. It would ask questions like, who's the hottest girl in class or who has the best body in class or who, you know what I mean? Who would you want to mm-hmm. hook up with? And they would write specific names. And I remember a boy in my class, like there was a list of girls and the question was to rate their bodies like in order. And mine was at the bottom. I will never- Yes. Yes. And I will never forget who did it. I will never forget it for as literally till the day that I die. I will not forget that somebody said that I didn't have a good body. And I like it pops up in my head every time I'm like, I need I can't not work out today or I can't eat this. I'm eating a donut and I think about it. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's if that's affecting me still Mm -hmm. from ninth grade, I can't imagine with now comparing yourself to everyone Mm -hmm. on social media have you seen a drastic change in in mental health in general? It's a really good question. Well,
2: first of all, how old are you? Can I ask that?
0: Yeah, I'm about to be 23.
2: Oh, so you're really young. Mm-hmm. So when you were in ninth grade, there well, wasn't in Instagram. Instagram wasn't popular yet. Instagram became a thing when we were in seventh grade. Formspring was. It was like Formspring,
1: Instagram, and but Instagram wasn't Instagram. Yeah. Quite then, and then Snapchat. And then remember Rap Chat? Rap
0: Chat was great. Those were like
1: the four things or yeah, four things we had. But Formspring was like right behind Facebook in relevance. But they actually had to get they got sued and had to be taken
2: down because of how bad cyberbullying was because of it. Yeah, it's a horrible idea. First of all, I'm so sorry yeah. that that happened to you. That sounds horribly <laughs> traumatic and that would totally fuck me up as well. So I'm so sorry that you went through that. And uh, that guy's clearly a piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) You have no idea. Yeah, Yeah. Bella has every idea. (laughs) I know you asked me a different question, but (laughs) can we just, have you guys read the four agreements? No. Okay. It's, it's about like taking nothing personally. That's one of the agreements. And it's like, you, you choose, hold on. Okay. It's basically saying like, you choose everything that you, that you believe. So you do not have to believe something just because some piece of shit, dick, ass said that about you, right? <laughs> like you can you can choose to agree with it or not. Because it is way more likely that that person is really messed up. And then it is likely that your body isn't like wonderful. You know, that's a messed right. up way of putting it. But I just mean that person clearly has their own... Mm-hmm trauma and shit that they're projecting on you. It's way more about him than it is about you. So um, I think this book is a spiritual book, but it's really cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a really effective intervention, which is essentially just looking at your beliefs and choosing better ones, choosing more healthy or true, effective beliefs. Like, actually, I'm really hot. And that guy was a really troubled, mean kid. Totally, nothing he says is true <laughs> or holds any accuracy right but it takes like yeah of cha- course right i know you know that but it's just like it's like challenging those little things over and over again right we it takes a lot more practice to make the positive things stick because our brains are wired for survival right so they're gonna pick up on rejection as to like ward does that make sense it's it's, it's going to pay attention totally. to what's threatening our survival. Okay, sorry. I, I went on a tangent. I just... That made no, me so mad that, that that guy said that. So I, I wanted to...
1: Well, <laughs> isn't that the thing of... um, What's it called? It's like the re-something bias. Yeah. What's the word for it? Whatever it is, I've heard a thing where it's like if you... It's even if you like want a white car, all of a sudden you're going to see a bunch of white cars driving around. Oh, bias
0: confirmation.
1: Maybe that's what it is. And then it's like if someone says something like, "Oh, you have her body is the worst body." Isn't there something like psychologically that your brain will like attach
2: onto that because you already feel that way about yourself? Yes, exactly, exactly. That that is also what he talks about in this book. So it's like we have our confirmation bias. You already believe it. You already believe it about yourself, so you look for it in the world. Yes. And you are more receptive to confirmation of what you already believe than evidence to the contrary. So even if way more people are telling you that you're, like, super hot than this one person that's telling you that you're not, like, if you believe that you're not hot, you'll just be like, yeah, he's right. Like, it, it confirms what you already believe. Yeah. But, like,
0: off of that, another question is, like, I, I do, I mean, I've been in therapy for 10 years with my same therapist and I'm constantly doing, like trying to apply these lessons that we're talking about right now. Like, you know, change the negative to the positive or, you know, reaffirm that to myself in a positive way. But it's so interesting how in certain, you know, triggers that it'll, it'll come up and like start to show up again and again and again. And so to make that into a question is you deal a lot with with people who, have obsessive tendencies, oh, right? Yeah. Like, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but eating disorders yes. and addiction, I know that it, it all goes in waves. So, if you have patients who are sort of like on a good wavelength, they, and they're on high vibration, and then all of a sudden they fall into to that cycle again, what do you sort of say to them to make them know that they don't have to go drastically back into something and they can sort of work through it? Like, how do you make mm. it sort of tangible for them to? Keep moving forward.
2: Mm, that's I keep after every question. I'm like, that's a great question, guys. Because um, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs>
0: We're so curious about this stuff, though, too. You know, yeah.
2: I mean, well, I gotta say, I've worked with some really severe OCD cases, and those are the the most challenging cases by fucking far. And I can just feel their suffering. It's so yeah. it's so painful because it feels like no matter how much work they do, those thoughts are just like, so incessant, so powerful. And I got to say, as a therapist, I'm still challenged with that. And even as a human being, I struggle with OCD. So I, that's still a question mark for me. Like some of my clients, they can redirect their thoughts more easily than I can. They just didn't know that they could do it. And I give them that skill and they're like, cool, like they're fine. And some (laughs) of us will have the intrusive thoughts every day or whatever. And I'm still, I think that has to do most likely with unacknowledged trauma, especially I'm really interested in this thing called the betrayal bond. So it's like when we can't get oh, hit us with that yeah, right totally. now. <laughs> <Hit> <laughs> us I'm with so that. excited for this. I think it's really difficult for us to get rid of the automatic thoughts, which are the racing intrusive thoughts, right? when we haven't yet addressed the core belief that's underneath it. And I think core beliefs are really correlated to trauma, like we've been talking about, and especially early caregivers. I think when someone who we still love or depend on for survival has given us a trauma or a belief about ourselves that we haven't really faced because we haven't been willing to admit this person is not perfect, Mm. then we can't, we can't face that illusion coming down of that person being this like godlike caretaker. Then we, we hold on somehow to their truths about us. And, um, it's really hard, right? If we have someone that we love, like sometimes I see an easier, a quicker recovery for people with really outright, like horribly abusive parents because they're just like, right. Fuck them. And for some people, yeah. it can be more complicated because they're like, I love my dad more than anything in the world. He's my hero. And they're not willing to be to see like, oh, my God, like my dad did all these things to me. I can still love him and also hold that like he traumatized me in this way. Right. Does that make sense? So I see when I see people that are like unable to get past something, that's what I'm seeing lately. But I'm this is still a question mark for me, like in my journey. <laughs> Um, so I don't know if that answered the question that they're, that they're not like grieving or appropriately acknowledging the the cause. Does that make sense? Like they're still agreeing with it on some level. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. How do you not cry all the time? (laughs) Yeah. I'm like tearing. I do. I cry all the time. That's yeah. yeah, I'm sure you do. That's
0: yeah. I mean, in another life, I would genuinely love to be a therapist but i don't think i would be able to separate i think i would be so like you know that concept of leave your shit at the door i just don't think i i think i would be so like take all that home with me and be like how can i yeah yeah how can i literally like mold these people and like make them the best versions of themselves and like that must just be so trippy for you
2: yeah it it's all really the time. weird it's really weird uh it's it's becoming it's kind of like a science at this point where it's like, I know what interventions work and I still try to give them as much heart and love and presence as possible. But, uh, if I'm going into every session, like loving my clients and because you do, you have love for your clients. Um, and like it, I will just cry all day. Like these people have gone through some crazy fucked up shit. So it's, it's pretty brutal. But, you know, but it's also really rewarding and great. Like, it, it's it's a journey. Anyway. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I'm sure the highs are very high and the lows are very low. Yeah,
2: yeah. I love the betrayal
0: bond thing. I can't stop thinking about it.
1: It's crazy. I would say onto a lighter note, but none of this is light. You also work with substance abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you see substance abuse? Is it more of, would you say, a nurture versus nature what side uh-huh. do you think plays into it more, or is it a combo? I love this question so much!
2: <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I am hugely of the um, nurture, not nature, camp. Fascinating. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of yes. There's a lot of evidence that shows that to be true, but I know that there's there's also still research to into. You know, brain science, and if they're, if you can tell if someone's more vulnerable to addiction. However, when we are born, our brains are still very much forming, and our circuitry is really, especially the circuitry that has to do with addictive chemicals, so opiates, endorphins, dopamine, you know that all that circuitry is developed in early childhood. And there's a very direct correlation between the experiences we had, the kind of love we got, this, the amount of stress in our household, and the way that that circuitry operates in our brains. And that's why you know, certain people with certain backgrounds are way more likely to be using substances because that's the only way that they can feel essentially love for the first time you know? So like love basically activates our, you know, opioids, our endorphins, like our dopamine, it's reward, bonding, safety. And all this stuff is like, if we don't have that from an early caregiver, we get that from fucking fentanyl, you know, meth, like all that stuff gives what we were never able to get as babies. So yeah, it gives that false sort of Connectedness, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I always wondered this though, like diving a little further into that question is, you know, you see it on different levels of, of the children who were neglected of love, the children who were overloved, the people mm-hmm. who fell into it because they had injuries. There's mm-hmm. so it, I feel like it's such a rabbit hole and I don't even know if that's a question, but it's just sort of like, it reminds me of this I feel like I sound so fucking pick me with all my like, I remember this from when Do I studied it. it but please. The, truly, there is this, sorry, there is this concept called um, the good enough mother. I don't know yeah. if you remember that. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, being good enough as a parent and because I feel like a lot of it nurturally falls back. Nurturally is not a word, but go with it. Nurturally. Um. It's a parental it's it's basically the parents' responsibility to make sure that this kid gets enough love or you know being right in the middle and because of our traumas, like I can't imagine when when I am an a parent that I will not overlove the shit out of my kids because I just want them to feel every bit of love that they can possibly have, but that can also drive them into addiction or into an eating disorder because they they feel helicoptered, so it's like what do you say, like, do you work with parents of, of the children and like how, if you
2: do, what, what can you say? It's really different based on each family dynamic and the willingness and openness and the humility of the parents, uh, versus the rigid, rigidity of the parents toward believing their way is the right way, you know? So it really depends on the family system. What, what kind of, um, intervention that I choose to take because family systems are so complex but here's a question kind of off of what
1: Jamie was saying and also family systems and then also drug addiction at its finest. What do you tell those around them what do they what do you say to people to help them help the person they love? Mm. Is there any trick because Jamie and I have both in positions where we've tried to help people who have drug problems and it's Mm -hmm. Fucking difficult and they're really resistant and no one wants to listen And sometimes people don't even want to admit they have a problem So what's the first step in trying to help someone who does have a problem?
2: If anyone is asking that I usually redirect them towards helping themselves because people that struggle with addiction are usually leaving behind a bit of a chaotic tornado around them and I just got the chills. Oh, yeah, um so really leaving them to the consequences of their own actions is the best way that they can mm. come to their senses, but it's really hard. It's really scary. Um I'm I'm getting the chills now too because I'm remembering clients I've had where like I've had someone who her son was using so much and it would draw her back into addiction when she would take care of him you know like it would she would let him live with her and then they would end up using together um or whatever right and so finally she put up boundaries she got sober for the first time actually and like stayed sober and finally was taking care of herself and putting up boundaries and he like went and got a job and everything seemed really good. And it was like, wow, they're both sober. They're both taking care of themselves. And then he fucking overdosed and died. And it was her worst nightmare. It's anyone's worst nightmare who has someone in their life that is using. But it's also like, it's the truth. That's the surrender. You're not in control of what they're going to do. And you are in control of taking care of yourself. And you can pray to God that, they will see the light and that your boundaries will help, you know, will help them see what they're doing because that does happen a lot. When when the addict has nowhere else to go, they're finally like, wow, I've fucked up. I've burned every bridge. I, I have no other choice to get sober or die. And unfortunately that, that ends up being the stakes. I see a lot of people come to recovery that way though, you know, when they don't have anyone yeah, lef- yeah. left to enable them.
0: Yeah. I find that so fascinating. Two, because all you want to do when you see somebody, because clearly they're in pain, is you want to help them. But by helping them, you're essentially enabling them. But if you don't enable them, you're completely out of control. So that's basically what you were just saying. But I right. just, it it's baffles me because at the end of the day, if they do choose the route to get well, and you know, you think things are going good, and they pass away, you somehow probably. Still feel as a parent or somebody very close that you could have sure. done something, and I think it's really important to remind people that that is a person's essential is their. I don't even want to say that, but is it their choice? Like you can't feel the responsibility for somebody not. I don't know because addiction I is a disease. What you're saying, I don't though. know, right? It's,
1: With it being in a way, it is a. Tr- a choice because that's how you have to look at it if you are dealing with someone who is struggling with addiction because you have to allow yourself to separate from it and be like, okay, this is their choice. I've done everything I possibly can. And I think that's a really important thing to remind mm-hmm. people that you can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped and you can't make mm-hmm. someone love themselves if they don't love themselves. And it's the hardest reality to face, but that's, that's where the help for them does lie is what you're saying. Totally.
2: And it is, it is really hard to let go when someone you love is struggling like that. It's the hardest thing. And I, I think you were also speaking to, is it a choice or not? And I think we're all wondering that, right. And you're like, well, addiction is a disease. It's like, but they are choosing, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. everyone sees it differently. Like the first step of the 12 steps is like admitted we were powerless. So it's like, I mean, in their addiction, it, it, it really does beg the question of human human will. It's like, how much choice do they have? How much choice do I have? How much power do we all have? And at a certain point, there's just like only the option of surrender for us as, clo- as people close to them and for them, right? So I don't know, now we're getting into the deeper philosophical territory.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, the question of choice is so interesting though, because it does make you think so many people have gotten sober and overcome addiction themselves. And then they succumb to it again. And it's that cycle of every day you have to wake up and choose sobriety. Mm -hmm. And that there is the choice within itself. So I feel like baseline, it is all just a choice of what you're willing to choose and what you're willing to admit to yourself. Because I feel like also a lot of the time, it's the struggle that people aren't willing to admit that they, they do have a problem that they're facing because once you admit you have that problem, then you have to to get better. And so it's better to just not even the choice of not saying you have a problem is also, I'm assuming, very prevalent in addiction within itself because you don't want to admit that you are addicted to something.
2: Right. Right. Exactly. That's so well said. So well said. And I think the irony is that once you do this is the power, I think, of the 12 steps is once you do admit that you're powerless over your addiction, then you do have a choice because you're not still pretending like you have any kind of foot insanity or control when you are using your drug of choice. You have admitted you are, it has led you to insanity, but then you, then you are given a choice. Like you are given the choice of sobriety. Right. And so that's the start is just to only choose sobriety and then let, god or higher power what universe whatever like do the rest you know so i think Mm -hmm. our choices our ability to choose changes you know depending on the situation and on the like all some people you might have someone struggling with substance abuse that's actually very receptive to your help, right where you can be like hey here are resources and they'll take them and then you're not being like a codependent person you're just helping and they're want to be helped right so you actually do have power there Mm -hmm. and then some situations it's fucking nothing you can do it is hard stuff (sighs) that took a turn sorry you know this podcast was always going to be a heavy one
1: (laughs) yeah but
0: i i think it's so i don't regret any minute of it because i think it's so important for people to even just start to acknowledge all of this sort of stuff. Um, if they can do it for themselves, if they can do it for, you know, their best friend or a loved one, it's just, it's really good to know anecdotes. It's good to know people's thought processes around these things so that it can just be a conversation in the first totally. place. Because, you know, I know so many people in my life who won't even consider, you know, therapy or still have that belief system that therapy is not helpful. And, and it's for
1: like broken people
0: yeah and the stigmas around therapy and on top of that people who don't have the access to help yes that's another thing that it's just there is I guess that is the bright side you know I love me a bright side of the internet and of technology there are a lot of resources mm-hmm. you know just on safari and like on youtube you can I'm sure there's people making videos to help people and talk through things. And there's a community for that if you can't access it, mm-hmm. you know. So that's the hopeful part of it all is that there are a lot of nobody is alone at the end of the mm-hmm. day because we have this
1: yeah.
0: crazy thing called technology. That's
2: true. It is. It's an amazing Right side, baby. It bright really side. is. Somehow she
1: brought it back to the bright side. I, I don't that. know how one does it, but she always does it. <laughs> that, that was really, really well done.
2: Well, I know okay.
1: she was like, and we're going to make this happy now. <laughs> happy. <laughs> Jamie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I I love it. I don't know. It's like I feel like we're just looking at things that are real. That's all it is. Sometimes hurts. you've got to see. <laughs> yeah,
1: you got to see the reality just to sympathize, because especially like, I don't know, for Jamie and I, we come from a very blessed life in a specific bubble where you don't see this stuff growing up until you kind of like leave the nest. You don't know what reality really is Mm -hmm. until you're out in the world on your own. And I think it's important for if we have people listening who are younger and don't know this information, it's helpful to have it for yourself in the future. Absolutely.
0: Before we close out with our final question, we, of course, have to say thank you so much, Casey, for your time, your vulnerability, your willingness to Be honest. Uh, Yes. That's really hard to do. We don't see it enough these days. Um, And also your long-awaited nickname, which we must now tell the listeners because that is how they will refer to you other than your name, Casey. It is K.C.WIP, which is Casey, work in progress to go with your calling from the universe or whatever you believe in. Or K.C.WIP, which is KC, Woman in Power, Women in Power. This is crazy because right W-I-P, before Casey. This, I was listening to a yeah. song
2: called WIP and it's like, work in progress. <gasps> wow. Synchronicity when the baby. is just giving you signs.
0: I love a synchronicity moment. Okay.
1: So this is a closing out <laughs> question. Casey, as Jamie has already given you your nickname, KCWIP, we are. Ask every one of our guests this question. And we were wondering, out of the last three purchases you made on Amazon, or Postmates if you don't use Amazon, something fun, what was
2: one of them? And tell us about it. Okay, I got a service dog vest for my dog. Because, guys, just get a vest and you can take your dog anywhere Life hack.
1: Milo's a registered service, not service dog, but he's an anxiety dog. Minus two. My.: I have a dog. What kind of dog do you have?
2: Uh, Australian Shepherd Mix. How about you? <gasps>
1: I have an Australian <sighs> in Shepherd too. My name is Petey. Do
0: you know, really? I love dogs. Maybe you can send us a picture of your dog and then on the end of our slides for our social media post oh, yeah. we'll put a picture of each dog. For
1: sure. And links
0: to rescues.
1: We love that. Rescue, baby. Yeah, Adopt yeah, yeah, don't shop.
0: All right, well, thank you, lovely K.CWIP, for your time. It was so great to talk
2: to you guys.
1: Well, wasn't that a good episode?
2: Yes,
0: that was very thought-provoking, very... Heavy, if I do say so myself, but
1: it was informative, too.
0: Yes, and extremely needed at a time like this. The way the world stands, it's just good to keep having these conversations. Um, Thank you for all of you who listened to this, and we hope you learned as much as we did. And, of course, thank you to KCWP for all of your graciousness, and your vulnerability, and your care for a subject that we care for so deeply as well.
1: So with that, we're going to switch on over to what we like to call our favorite segment that is called Surprise Motherfucker. As you guys know, here's the drill. Lauren, our producer, sends us an article every week. We're not allowed to discuss it until we're sitting right here in front of these microphones. Today's article is called... How to Survive a Cringe Attack, The Science and Psychology of Embarrassing Memories.
0: You can find this article on... The Cut. The Cut. Hit it. We will also link that. <laughs> Hit it. This was a great article. I actually thoroughly enjoyed this one. Mm-hmm. And as you probably heard in my intro, I have a lot of embarrassing memories. So this one was a fun read. Uh, what you got for me?
1: Well, I thought it was interesting because there's a part of it, artic- the article where I personally don't get embarrassed. I'm just like, whatever, like shit happens. Like that's life. And also my brain, I think my way of justifying not being embarrassed is like, man, no one remembers. Sh-. Everyone's so self-involved. They don't actually remember what you did. Right. They're thinking about themselves and their embarrassing memories, you know? Yeah. So I think about that. But then what I thought was interesting was the, there was a guy and he said something along the lines of, uh, the people you find who are less sensitive to embarrassment are either total jerks or else they're very self-accepting. And I didn't think about it in the way that it is self-accepting, but I think I am very self-accepting in the sense that I'm just like, that's me. Yeah. If it's embarrassing or not, I did it, so it's me. So that's, might as well move on from it.
0: I feel like we talk about this a lot too. And it's one of the things that I admire most about you is that you don't get
1: embarrassed. Like it's life. Yeah. You might as well look at it in the, that's how I look at it at least, which I felt I could relate to a lot of the things in this article about... I really feel like there's a frog in my throat. <laughs> frog, Um, The there's just the part of it where I was talking about. Well, they go into this crazy thing that I didn't know was a thing, but it's called HSAM. Hassam. And Hassam. And in with Hassam, you remember everything, everything about your life.
0: Yeah, crazy.
1: Every single day, you can How tell someone with that, this. By the way, yeah, you could tell someone like March third, two thousand five, and they'll remember it which is in detail, which is crazy to me. And the article went into the idea with these people where it's, they remember so much of their life. They don't remember the embarrassing memories because every emotion is held on the same level. Whereas there's like a feedback loop with embarrassment if you don't have a perfect memory. And I thought it was interesting to look at it in the scale of like, oh, an embarrassing moment for someone who remembers everything is just another moment in life. Whereas for someone who doesn't remember everything, that embarrassing moment Sticks out in your brain because there's, like, a trauma or there's, like, a high emotion link to it. Yeah. Whereas—
0: Or, like, the—I like the idea of the unresolved. Yeah. Um, so they were saying, like, when a embarrassing memory essentially gets interrupted, like, you don't have the chance to explain yourself and be like, it's not the way it looks or whatever that yeah. is. It, it comes up more easy for you. And also, how interesting that it's, like, a texture or a color or a street mm-hmm. name or any of those things can— directly relate to bringing up that embarrassing moment for you yeah I was dying at the beginning of the the article and she was talking about how she was putting clothes away and then she said to herself no 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 <laughs> like to herself I was like I do that all the time like I just had like a flashback up, up. <laughs> yeah, I'm like go away because it's so weird I think too and I don't know if the article really said this or this was just the interpretation of it but it's like you don't see you will never see that embarrassing memory the way somebody else saw it happening to you yeah but it's they said it's something along the lines of it's the closest you can get to Two. seeing how oh, other it's people and i
1: can tell you what it is to quote it exactly because it was very interesting these embarrassing memories briefly shift your perspectives as you imagine what you must have looked like from somebody else's point of view in an instant you're freed from your own perspective so a cringeworthy moment can be used as a reminder that yours is not the only perspective
0: right which is crazy yeah and tags along the point of the innate selfishness of a human and mm-hmm. how much time we spend thinking about ourselves versus yeah. what other people are doing like I'm not out here being like oh Bella did this embarrassing thing five years ago and I can't look at her the same
1: you can remember someone's reaction to an embarrassing moment yeah but if they don't play it like they were embarrassed you'll right. never remember it's that moment so
0: true wow I embarrass myself constantly but I can't remember right now if you were like what's an embarrassing thing I'd be like
1: uh yeah I don't have one either Being alive, I don't know. Existing is pretty embarrassing at this point. Eating, I hate eating in front of people. Yeah, you do. But what is that embarrassing? No, I think it's it's a whole other psychological issue. Oh right, right. I forget we have those as well. (laughs)
0: There's a fun too. Um. Um,
1: Well, that was our article. If you guys want to read it and like comment, let us know. Yeah, let let us know. know You're embarrassing. I thought we were gonna say the same thing. Oh, close (laughs) though. Let us know some thoughts and say let us know. Some of your embarrassing moments, if you can remember any. I wish we could.
0: Yeah. And maybe if you send in yours, it's, it'll, it'll trigger spark something ours, in ours. And we can have a little convo re embarrassing moments. Lek gayin. Lek gayin. That was pretty embarrassing. Heard that, sister. Aye. Let's get into uh-huh. the hot takes of the week. Uh, aura rings are in. Aura rings are most. Definitely in Gary. Hot take: Pitbull is fire.
1: Have we not done that one?
0: <laughs> I don't think <laughs> like so. But he lives—he lives in my subconscious twenty-four-seven. I fucking love Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide, the absolute legend goat of our time. Oh, I have
1: another hot take. Um, Dave Portnoy and his girlfriend are so cute. I know they're so. Cute. I love that. I love them too.
0: I love their little challenges they do their together. Their little
1: TikToks are so cute. I stalked her.
2: She's so
0: pretty. So pretty. And he's just honest. He's piping. He's really hot. Hot take. Dave Portnoy (laughs) is actually a flaming hot. He's a flaming hot Cheeto, if you ask me.
1: He's a Taki. He's a hot Cheeto and (laughs) Taki.
0: Hot Cheetos and Takis. Thanks for listening. See you
1: next week. (laughs) (laughs) Heady. Please rate, like, and subscribe on Apple and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nail Polish Sisters is hosted and produced by Jamie Belushi and Bella Gianulli. Produced by Lauren Boone. Edited by Jordan Fair. Original music by Joey Cars. The The Nail Nail Polish Polish Sisters Sisters is a Gulfstream Studios production. (laughs) And if you've made it this far, 100 points.